0: Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. It's been a couple weeks, but um, we actually started a new series in the Book of James a couple weeks ago, and. Um, then the week after we started that, we had Baptism Celebration Sunday, which was awesome. And then last week, we actually uh, had a few of us up here kind of sharing, and uh, which, I, which I thought was just really significant. And um, hopefully you haven't just moved on from the conversation last week. And hopefully there are some things that you have decided to follow through with and uh, maybe incorporate as you look at intimacy with Jesus and what that looks like. I... Uh, I was super encouraged this morning talking to somebody who mentioned that there's a group of uh, students who have decided to begin a regular rhythm of fasting um, weekly, which is really, really awesome. And uh, super excited about that. And I mean, if, you know, like growing boys can do that um, who need like 7 billion calories to grow, um, I think we can probably do that as well. Um, But but, uh, anyway, this morning we're going to jump back into James, and uh, we're going to jump into James chapter two, and uh, we are skipping part of the first chapter because we're going to actually come back to that, uh, beca- uh, and come back to that at the end of our series. Um, so don't worry, we're not we're not intentionally skipping something we don't want to we don't want to walk through. Um, you know what's interesting? We tend to have a an idea about ourselves that we are really good judges of character. Um, <clears throat> we tend to think that we are good at at determining why people do things. Um, I mean, just look around a little bit, and everyone is telling us why this person or that person did this thing. Um, we are pretty limited, though, as to how we can come to those conclusions. We have we we tend to we tend to make those judgments and determinations based off of our senses and our experience. Our, our senses, what we see, what we hear, what we feel, those kinds of things, and our experiences, because we, we tend to make an assumption about ourselves that that my, my experience is generally representative of what most people experience. And so, so I kind of see myself as that kind of plumb line of what people maybe experience. And, and then I make interpretations and judgments on, on other people. And it's interesting because we see in Scripture that God makes conclusions and judgments very differently than we do. Because he has actually much more available to him. It says in scripture that, that God actually looks at the heart as opposed to just looks on the outside. God looks at the motives, the internal motives of people. It's interesting how frequently either we or we hear people making determinations about other people's motives. And what's interesting about that is that we can see people's methods, we can see what people are doing, but we actually can't see inside why they're doing it. In fact, sometimes they'll say why they did what they did, but but just pausing for a second and asking the question: how often do you know why you do something? Sometimes I don't even ha- I don't even know my own motives because oftentimes my motives are so 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 deep and so uh, so almost veiled that it's, it's hard for me to even realize why I just did what I did. In fact, Sherry and I last night were talking about something that, that I, I reacted to something she said and she asked me why I reacted that way and it actually took me a while to get to the point of actually explaining why I did it and my first explanation, which I thought was the reason I did it, wasn't even really why I did it anyway. And maybe you don't struggle with that and I'm weird, but but that I think that that's something that we have to deal with. But God doesn't have that. And so if, I mean, I don't even know why I do things sometimes. How can I be accurate when I look at other people and determine why they're doing something? But God doesn't have that limitation. God actually sees the heart. He sees the internal motives. He knows us better than we know ourselves and he can tell what's going on. And so because of the limited nature of our interaction with others, we tend to develop all kinds of known and unknown biases over our lifetime. And so when, our, when those biases, which in other words for those biases are like discrimination or partiality or favorite or preference, when, when those things are not surrendered to the Holy Spirit, we inaccurately reflect and represent the heart and the holiness of God to those around us. So before we get into the text, uh, James chapter two, we're gonna look at verses one through 13. Remembering that James wrote, and he is the half-brother of Jesus. So Jesus was his oldest brother in that family, that he became a Jesus follower later after Jesus died and rose from the dead, and that James became a leader, one of the primary leaders in the early church, and that his life was just engulfed in the, Life and teaching of Jesus. That's what he focused on. And that as he writes this letter, he really, what we see is a deep, deep connection to the teachings of Jesus, especially in Matthew chapter five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we get into this passage, there is a, con, a very significant connection that James has and motivates him, I believe, in this part of his letter and it's connected to Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 where Jesus says blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Kind of remember that statement that Jesus makes as we walk through this passage. Remember the idea that Jesus says blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. So so James chapter 2 verse 1 we start here it says he says my brothers Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So he begins with really making the point of this little section, because again, James is kind of proverbial, like the Proverbs where he kind of gives these these different wisdom, wisdom pieces to deal with current issues in the church that he's dealing with. And so he begins with this, basically by saying, Don't be partial, don't show favoritism, don't discriminate as you hold faith in Jesus. So what's interesting right off the bat is that in the early church, this early church that oftentimes we we think and we categorize as like this almost paradise place where everyone had what they needed because everyone shared, and you know, it's and, and again it says in Acts that you know the believers were of one mind and heart, and 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 you've got them breaking bread together and all those things. And sometimes we we have this like, this this fake view of the early church that there wasn't any problems. And it's interesting that James says, "Show no partiality toward one another," which means. That was kind of an issue. In fact, it was enough of an issue. We can ignore little things for quite a while, but then eventually they come to a place where we have to confront them. And so James, what he's saying is that there's a problem in the early church that there's partiality and favoritism and discrimination going on within the body of Christ, which actually makes sense because that's a human nature problem. Because of sin, that's a problem in all times, in all societies, in all civilizations, until Jesus returns. Now we don't know the exact degree it was a problem, but it was enough that James needs to confront it in the church. And so really, favoritism or partiality or discrimination, this thing that James is talking about, literally is receiving the face. And what that means is is, is you are making a determination on what is before you, the visual that stands before you. Uh, It's to make judgments about people based on the external appearance, the things that we drink in with our five senses. And James, in this passage, his example he uses is applied to like dress, and he contrasts social and economic situations of of garments and, and outerwear, but also it, is, it includes acts of favoritism in the heart or bias, and so there's a pretty wide net of application as James talks this through. And so what we, what we know is that the Bible clearly teaches that we are not to make decisions about people based on external factors, whether it be dress, color of skin, or general physical appearance. And God is consistent with this from the very beginning. We see God's heart throughout the entire revealed word. In Deuteronomy 10, when God is giving the Israelites the law, listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 17. He says, he introduces himself, and this is quite the introduction. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. God doesn't take some kind of benefit to himself to favor certain people. Um, God's not into special interest groups. <laughs> he doesn't participate in that. And he's not partial to one group or another based on the visual presentation. And, and moving on, he, he, he In Deuteronomy 10, he continues. It says, he executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow and loves the sojourner, those who are not from your tribe, not from your nation, giving them food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Later in Leviticus 19, uh, God again says, about behavior and and the the interaction with one another. He says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. We don't have that problem today, do we? Um, And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so God makes it very clear that this is not a new concept in James or in the teaching of Jesus. This is something that God's heart was for humanity all along that we actually see each other not by what maybe our, our visual, our senses perceive, but actually the, basic, the, the actual value and worth of being created in God's image. So moving on to verse two, it says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembling, a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts. Now this is kind of a, I, this, this is an example that James is giving to illustrate what he's talking about. I don't know if this is maybe something that James heard actually happened in a church, that a man wearing fine robes and a gold ring came in and then a guy who was shabby and, and looked really poor came in and they actually did that. I don't know if they actually did that. I don't know if maybe this is an example of what is kind of happening But there's some interesting things in this story and I think it is really easy to read what James says here and completely miss the point because of our biases and because of the way we function and we think that is different than the way God thinks. Because in the story, depending on your biases, you will think certain things. Some people, in just hearing that story, will say, yeah, that rich man was a jerk. But notice that in the story, there's no characterization of the rich man. And some of us might think, yeah, the the poor man was just, you know, humble and nice and all that, and the rich man, you know, he walks in with his gold ring and all that. But again, there's no characterization. In, In fact, the story that he tells Says nothing about the goodness or badness of the rich or the poor man. The issue are the people who are who are leading that particular gathering and how they are seeing those two people, not what those two people are. This isn't a commentary on rich, bad, poor, good, or poor good, or, or poor, bad, rich good. This actually is talking about whether or not our hearts and our values are in line with God's values. That's actually what this is about. So, so it says that they, these, two, these two individuals come into a gathering, which, which it's, it's probably some kind of church service. And so these two men come in, and they're greeted at the door. And one of them, because of the hearts and minds of those who are at the church or at that gathering, they treat the man that they visually perceive as more valuable and maybe even more valuable to them in a certain way, with honor, and they treat the other individual as almost throwaway. Again, not because of what the rich and the poor man did. The problem isn't with those two guys, the problem is in the heart of those who James is talking about. And so it says these two men came in, they were possibly visitors or maybe new converts looking for a gathering to to go to, and and maybe they were just looking for a community to belong in, and then this happens. And it's interesting, because it seems as though not just the poor man was done a disservice in this story, but also the rich man because of the way he was treated. He was probably actually done a disservice as well. It's very possible that he came in not wanting to be made a big deal of, but all of a sudden, they put him in this special place and everyone's eyes are on him. And so what's happening is these, these, these Christians in authority in this local community are fawning over the rich man and treating the poor with disdain and contempt. And so really what, what James is trying to point out here is that these improper divisions being made reflect the improper divisions that are already harbored in the minds and the hearts of these believers. It's actually another manifestation of this wavering, divided attitude toward God. Taking in the things that we like that God says and rejecting the things that we don't like that God says. In fact, James talks about that in, the, in chapter one, verses five through eight, when he, when he says, um, if you need wisdom, ask God who gives generously. And then he says, but do it in faith without doubting and don't be like a wave tossed by the wind double-minded, unstable in all your ways. Don't go back and forth. Don't know what God says and then ignore part of what God says and do this and go back and forth. And it's interesting, in this, in this passage, he says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In other words, they're claiming God's right to stand in judgment over who is worth more in this situation. And he says that you're using sinful standards of judgment. They're following the world's standards of judgment in this moment and they're becoming sinful judges. And so the rest of this passage, James unpacks why this is wrong. Why is this a problem? Because probably for most of us, we know the answer is, well, obviously that's, that's a problem, it's wrong. But, but can we really, do we really understand why it's wrong? Because it happens all the time. We make these judgments about people based on what we see. Not actually understanding or looking through the eyes and the, and the, and the vision that God has. And so in, in verse, verse five, it says, listen, my brothers, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Partiality based on externals is wrong because it contradicts God's own attitude. When we make decisions about somebody else and and, and what they look like and and what what we have decided that that type of person is like, we actually contradict God's own attitude towards them and towards us. God is incredibly generous with salvation and faith and his kingdom. And faith is actually the measure of wealth in God's economy rather than material possessions. And so one of the questions when when we look at this, it says that God has, he says, has not God chosen the poor, those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith? And, and then he goes on at the end of, of, of verse, verse six, it says, are not the rich ones those who oppress you and who drag you into court? So one of the questions that you have to stop and ask here is, is, is does the Bible then teach that God favors trading one form of discrimination for another form? In other words, here maybe saying, okay, so that means we need to favor those who are poor or have, have less in life and, and actually take away from those who have more. Which some people have concluded that the Bible means that, or James means that. And so it's interesting because as we look at what James, again, actually says, when when the Bible talks about the poor, it is not necessarily one-dimensional. The poor often in the Bible does have something to do with the material, but also the spiritual. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about people who materially have a lot and a little, but he's talking about people who recognize their own spiritual poverty when it comes to righteousness. And so we want to be careful that the biblical authors, their use of poor is not just one-dimensional, but it often contains both spiritual and material. And what James doesn't say, he doesn't say God only uses the poor and so there's a couple, a couple things that have happened. And, and a lot of it, based on this, years ago, there was something called liberation theology that became a thing. And there's still, maybe not in the same terminology, but it's still around. It's the idea that there are, that the Bible presents things as there, is the oppressor and the oppressed, and that there's the rich and the poor, and that there will always be an, uh, an, an oppressed group and a demonized group. And so it was liberation theology started with the idea that that, that there was a lack of justice for those who were marginalized, which the Bible clearly says that there needs to be great care and compassion and mercy toward those who are marginalized. But the problem is it went to a place and actually applied worldly principles to biblical thought And so it's interesting in traditional Western theology, it tends to favor right belief often at the expense of the indiscriminate grace of God. That something that kind of seeps into our Western Christianity is that we get what we deserve and we work for. That actually is inconsistent with what the Bible says about our relationship with God. We don't get what we work for because we can't work for a relationship with God. God has to give us the free gift of salvation. And yes, do we pursue intimacy with God over our lifetime? Can we do things that open up our relationship with God? Absolutely, but it is not based on our righteousness or our goodness or our deserving of those things. And so often our little tribes within the church start to correct, want to correct something that is wrong in another tribe by actually doing another wrong. <laughs> and that's when we end up with, with the messes that we deal with so frequently. You see, God, the New Testament reveals, delights especially to show his grace on those whom the world has discarded and on those who are most keenly aware of their own inadequacy. You see, All of these issues have been issues forever. James calls on the church to embody a similar ethic of special concern for the poor and the helpless, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner. And so how does this fit with our lives, with my life, and what we're we're dealing with all of these kinds of things in our culture today? Nothing's changed, really. In fact, we look at American history and where we are at this point in American history, We've got black lives, police officers, cancel culture, the 1%, CRT, immigration, all those things that you can throw out there. So the question is, what would Jesus say about all of these things to the people who are in the discussion? And just like Jesus did back in the day that he he walked on this earth, Jesus would most definitely defy any modern day ideologies Jesus wouldn't be a Democrat and he wouldn't be a Republican and he wouldn't be a Libertarian. He wouldn't be fill in the blank, whatever you favor. But here's what Jesus would do. And stick with me here. Jesus would come alongside the black family who lost a child regardless of the circumstances and grieve with them. Jesus would walk with a police officer who walks in danger Every day, and confront and comfort the fears and concerns of his or her family giving them peace. Jesus would walk with the alien from Honduras to the border, caring for their needs, both physical and spiritual. You see, one of the, the struggles that we have, and, and, I, and I want you to hear this, because I'm probably just creating tension with what I'm saying. I'm not solving anything. But here's here's what I think our problem is, and this is why we start to shut off when we start to have these conversations. We begin the conversation with our conclusions. We begin the conversations with our conclusions, with our policy, rather than beginning them at a place of mercy in how Jesus sees other people. I think I have this story mostly right but the students who went on the Honduras trip, when they were down in Honduras, the, one of the guys who they were working with, challenged them a bit. And he said this. He said, "The people that you are ministering to here in Honduras, they are headed north. And they're going to show up at your border, at your doorstep, and they're going to go through legally or illegally." He said, what you have an opportunity today to influence, the opportunity you have today is whether or not they show up at your doorstep as Jesus followers or still slaves to sin. Does that change our perception at all? Like we start with mercy and compassion and seeing people the way Jesus sees them and you know what, we'll get, we'll get to a conclusion and we'll get to a policy. I mean, but Jesus starts the conversation not at the conclusion. See, Jesus recognizes the evil that has been done because of partiality and, dis- and discrimination and he calls everyone to surrender to him and he will welcome those, anyone who responds in humility with repentance, into his kingdom. To humbly come before Christ with repentance, he allows into his kingdom. And he doesn't just push this endless cycle of ups and downs, replacing. Here's the thing. The problem with how we think, we think the conclusion before mercy. And so what we do is we say, well, if this group of people was hurting another group of people, and this group of people is having a hard time, we need to switch places with them. That's how the world works, and that's the solution in the world. The only place that that was the solution in all of history, past, present, and future, is when Jesus traded places with you on the cross. That is the only trading of places that the Bible confirms and says is good. Jesus took my place on the cross so that I could have salvation. And and so me placing someone else in a place or position, that's not what God calls me to do. God calls me to have mercy and love. And again, as I said, that doesn't solve all of the tensions we live in but it does tell us that we probably need to think a little bit more before we open our mouths or make that post. See, the quintessential message of the Bible is that every one of us is in desperate need of help and have no hope of pulling ourselves up or making it on our own. Because if that were the case, then Jesus' death was pointless and foolish. And I think the hard thing for some of us if you're in my same maybe situation, I was born into a family. My parents were Christians, went to church. I can't remember a time that I didn't know about Jesus. And so when I think of myself in reference to maybe other people who didn't have that opportunity, it's hard for me to be thankful for what I was saved out of. But the reality is that I was as much an enemy of God and rebellious toward him as anyone else in the entire world. So often those who are redeemed by God's mercy and grace through Jesus Christ, so often they forget where they came from. And that makes it really easy for us to just make conclusions about others. So we have to be careful. Favoritism on externals is foolish. That's the next thing that James says. In verse six and seven, he says, but you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, there was something going on in the, in the culture of that day where the wealthy in Rome and the Roman Empire We're using their power and influence to secure favorable verdicts against the poor. Practices that are normal in every age, aren't they? There's no civilization that that doesn't happen in. And and so it's nothing new, It's, it's just old, it's the same thing because of sin and because of selfishness and because of jealousy and so that happens. And so James gives this example, he says, look, favoritism on externals is foolish because it doesn't actually benefit you. It doesn't make any sense because everyone is out for their own benefit. Now also, James is not giving permission to be unkind to the rich. He's simply arguing not to give undue deference to them at the expense of the, the poor or at the expense of whoever you can get a benefit from. So he's saying, look, it's, you've got to look at people the way God looks at people basically rather than the way we look at people because when we look at people, whether we want to admit it or not, we look at people through the way they can enrich us. It is against human nature to look at someone and fully look at how you can benefit their life. We want something out of it and that's why we struggle with this partiality and favoritism. See, unless our connection is anchored and surrendered to King Jesus and loyal to the kingdom of God, any alliance that we make will be temporary and ultimately destructive. And he says, look, you can make this connection with this, this person who you think can benefit you because of their means and their wealth, but that doesn't mean it's gonna work out because if they're not surrendered to Jesus, the natural course of sin is that they will, if they have the opportunity, take advantage of you. And and, and, so, and and so the final thing he says is favoritism is wrong because it violates the kingdom law of love. In verse eight, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. In other words, he says partiality and love cannot coexist. Love is of God and partiality he defines as sin. Partiality isn't just oh yeah, I'm just you know I'm I'm not balanced. No, it's sin. When we do that, we are sinning, and James says, according to scripture, that we are then not just disobeying, disobeying something that's important, but we are disobeying God, just like anyone else who disobeys God, and we have wronged God, and we are living in sin in that context. Because God will judge all, there's no excuses, no comparisons, or the greater good we are judged against the righteousness of Christ. And so in in, in obedience to King Jesus, we are called to build among ourselves a genuine counterculture in which the values of the kingdom of God rather than the values of the world are presented and grow. And so again, God's perspective is if I break any of his laws... I'm not just breaking a law, but I'm actually disobeying him. And so it's all or nothing. To violate one thing that God calls us to do is to disobey God and render us guilty before him. And so James talks about all of this stuff about partiality and then he finishes with this. And this is where I wanna wanna come back to because of of what, what Matthew 5, 7 says. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Look at what verse 12 says. So speak and, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment, without, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he says this, he says, constantly be speaking, constantly be acting in a way that you recognize that Jesus will judge the things that you say and the things that you do. The world won't judge you. Jesus will, no matter who you are. And he will judge you against his own righteousness. And so the royal law, the Old Testament law, and the law of liberty, the law of freedom in Christ, they are both the same thing in that they are the sum total demands that God, through Jesus, imposes on those who follow him. So he says, regulate your conduct with an eye on the judgment to come, and knowing that if we have Christ in our life, the Holy Spirit, that that we then are, are graciously accepted by God, but that gracious acceptance does not end our obligation to obey him. We are no longer threatened by God's holiness, but now we are liberated from the penalty of sin and live in the spirit with the power to obey God's will. Understand that those who don't live in the spirit don't have the power to obey God. That's why we have to have mercy. Because we were shown mercy when we didn't have the ability to obey God. So we need to have mercy for those who don't have the ability to obey God. And he gives this warning at the end. He says, judgment without mercy will be experienced by those who fail to be merciful. And and sometimes this passage is looked at by people saying, well, James feels pretty legalistic that if you don't show mercy, you won't get mercy. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 7? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James is just repeating what Jesus says. The mercy, now I want you to catch this, and this is what I want us to kind of walk away with. This is what is, I think, critical today to walk away with. The mercy we show others reveals our desire to obey the law of the kingdom and a heart made right By the work of God's grace. In other words, if you are not characterized by mercy, that might be an indicator to just ask where your relationship with Jesus is. If you're always starting the conversation with the conclusion or the policy and not starting with mercy, and expressing the love and the value that Jesus sees in other people. You see, merciful actions and attitudes count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. If if mercy does not characterize my actions and my attitudes, then is Jesus present within me? That's, That's the hard question. This morning we're gonna we're gonna share communion and take communion together. So, uh, hopefully, when you walked in, you got a little packet. So you can take those out right now. And this morning, as we as we share together in communion, um, my hope and prayer is, is that 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 as we do this, we recognize that the only reason we can do this and remember the 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 body and the blood of Jesus Christ in a way that it gives us encouragement and peace is because of the mercy that Jesus showed us while we were yet sinners and died for us on the cross. That is the only reason we can even participate in this together because of the mercy that Jesus showed us and the mercy that Jesus calls us to show others. And and, and so Jesus takes And when he was with his disciples and they're eating this meal and having a great time together and he he takes the bread and he breaks it and he said, this is my body broken for you. That, That Jesus allowed his body to be destroyed in my place, in your place. So he said, take and eat, so go ahead and take and eat. And then Jesus took the cup, and he said, "This, this is my blood that was shed for you. The blood that covers your sin, my sin, and that He calls us to look and, and draw other people so that their sin can be covered too." And He said, "When you when you do this together." Remember that I did this for you. That I didn't hold on to my rights, that I didn't claim my rights as God, but I laid my life down and I shed my blood so that you can have forgiveness of sin. So take the cup and drink the cup together. Jesus, I I pray this morning that we would we would be overwhelmingly aware of what you've done for us. God, I don't know how to solve all of the tensions and problems that are going on in the world today. But God, I do know that you call us to begin every conversation, to begin every interaction, with mercy. God, we didn't deserve your mercy, but you started the conversation with mercy anyway. God, I pray that we would stop holding so tightly to our conclusions and our statements and our explanations, and we would begin with mercy. God, that you would help us not only remember what you did for us, but also that we would remember where we've come from. And that our purpose is to influence those around us to surrender themselves to you, Jesus, in humility and repentance and allow you to change them dramatically. God, may we participate in your work of mercy in this time so that people would see you for who you are. Spirit, that you would convict people of sin and that they would surrender their lives to you and their agendas and their passions and their dreams. God, that we would walk with you